0: So I'm really, really torn about this movie. There's going to be spoilers in this, so I'm going to assume that you've watched it all. If you're not going to watch it, I don't think it's going to do any harm. I'll, I'll put in enough, sort of flesh out enough detail that this will make sense to you. But this is a Nietzschean modern hellscape of nihilism, violence, codependence, suicidality, and outright resentment against wealth and and power and influence. And as such, it is a bottom-dwelling murder fantasy against the existing system. And I'm going to just dive in and, and we'll talk about the themes here. And I look forward to your feedback below. But let's talk about some of the themes. So, a while ago, I tweeted about my mom and her violence towards me when I was growing up. And she was extraordinarily violent. She did end up being committed uh, to an institution when I was in my early teens. And I've basically been fending for myself since about the age of 15 or so. So it's been a long, hard road. And you know, when you are behind the eight ball to that degree, when you have a violent, crazy, invasive, verbal diarrhea, dysfunctional mom, then, I mean, it teaches you a lot about evil, it teaches you a lot about madness, but it teaches you a lot about society. And that's a lot of what the Joker is about, is how someone slides down this slippery gravelscape of abuse and dysfunction and codependence to the point where he becomes a florid, manic murderer, mass murderer. I grew up, I mean, he's he's a rung or two below where I grew up. We had a fairly decent place in England when we came to Canada. Things got a whole lot rougher. And I know something about this underworld where he came from. Arthur Fleck is the name of the character. Not anything to do with Affleck or Ben Affleck, I'm sure. But I know a little bit about this underworld. I know quite a bit about this underworld. The underworld is really, really dysfunctional people who may have decent intentions but have this undertow of of madness and horror that that continually pulls them down like a swimmer with fading arms against the riptide. I mean, I remember when we first, when my mom and I first moved into a building in Toronto. I lived in apartments my whole life, of course. There was a, a neighbor, a neighbor next door. He was a policeman. And he and his wife invited us over. Oh, new neighbors invited us over for dinner. Unfortunately, we were, I guess fortunately, we were unable to go for dinner because he got into a fight with his wife or his girlfriend and shot a gun into the wall. So that social engagement was off. And this is, that was a bit of an outlier, but it wasn't wildly out of pace with the sort of neighborhood and and the people that were around. It is a real, um, I mean, it's a, Dantean and Hellscape, it's an, it's an underworld populated by human devils and lost souls and so on and it's not that that harms you fundamentally, it's not the craziness, it's not the evil that harms you, it's society as a whole and there's these cheap stupid answers that come out and this movie is guilty of that too, which is like, oh well the media amplifies violence and there are video games and there are rap lyrics and there you need trigger warnings and so on and that's all crap. It's all absolute crap when it comes to this. When I put out that I'd been abused by my mother as a child, and she sort of beat my head against the door as when I was four or so, I sort of tried to get away from home. I tried to escape. I went and packed up some, I guess we called it biscuits at the time, some cookies, and I tried to make it out of the little apartment. And she caught me, and she beat my head against the door. I was about four years old until I almost lost consciousness and just kind of went limp and, and, and just surrendered to, to that situation. Uh, recognizing that there was, in fact, no escape. When you put this kind of information out there, and I'm not putting this out there to sort of harm or traumatize or gain sympathy, these are just facts, and they're appallingly common facts about how people are raised, particularly in single-mother households. And, of course, a lot of people are like, wow, you know, if you talk about your mother in a negative way, you must be like Norman Bates, you know, like you're going to be a a killer, or or you've got people locked in your basement, all this kind of stuff, right, if you talk about your mother in a negative way. What's fascinating about this movie, though, and and what I pointed out on Twitter was I said, look, all of you who attack the victim, which was me as a child, who attack the victim of child abuse, you are enabling and supporting the abusers. You are siding with the abusers against their child victims. It's really, really important for people to understand. If people talk to you about child abuse, listen, have sympathy, be sympathetic. And, you know, be careful, because some people can be really manipulative this way. But in general, you know, listen and be sympathetic. Because if you, or, you know, or at the very least don't side with the abuser and and further demonize the victim of child abuse. Because what you're doing when you do that is you're siding with the abusers, you're reinforcing with the abusers. And fundamentally, if you side with the abusers against the victims, what you're doing is you are becoming primarily responsible for the continuation of child abuse because the abusers need society to attack their victims so they get off scot-free. So this author-flex relationship to his mother is very interesting, it's very deep, it's very fascinating. And I'm, I don't know the degree to which the filmmakers intended this or anything like that, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter at all. I mean, this is what Socrates said when he was trying to find wise people back in the day, 2,500 years ago. He was trying to find wise people, and he went to the artists who had incredible power and depth in their art, but he realized that they didn't really know anything about what they had created, that it was kind of epilepsy, that they just kind of produced this art without really knowing why. So let's not worry about the intentions of the artists. Let's just unpack what's going on in the movie. So, Arthur, in the movie, he's kind of an emaciated, chain-smoking, I think he's in his 40s. It's tough to tell with smokers, right, because they age kind of prematurely. But he's in, his, he's in his 40s, probably, and he lives with his mother. Now, his mother is a burnt-out, crazy person. And her violence and craziness and dysfunction are not shown in the movie. They're only revealed later. So he lives with his mother, and his mother has lied to him about foundational aspects of his life, which we'll get to later. And he sits down with his mother, who's very gentle and soft-spoken. And his mother keeps writing letters to Bruce Wayne's dad. Uh, you know, a rich guy. She and, and she's begging for help from this rich guy because she worked there thirty years ago, and he's she's like, oh, if if if. If he knew how we were living, he would never stand for it. He'll come and help us. And this idea of salvation is really common, particularly among women. This idea that someone is coming to save them, that they don't really have to act. They just have to petition. They just have to ask. They just have to beg. They just have to... This is what Nathaniel Brandon, the psychologist and associate and lover of Ayn Rand, was talking about when he said he would get together people for his therapy sessions and he would say, my, my whole purpose here is to get you to understand that no one is coming to save you. No one is coming to fix your life. No one is coming to make your life better. Because, you know, when we're kids, we really need our parents to take care of us. We really need our parents to listen to us. And to supri- supply the needs we have that we can't supply for ourselves. But the tragic thing or the reality is that when we get to be adults... No one is going to fulfill what our parents should have done. And it's nobody's job to fulfill what our parents should have done. You, you, can't, you can't fix what was missing in your childhood by attempting to get it as an adult. Like if, let's say, you know, the sort of classic thing, which is the, the girl who was, uh, couldn't get her father's attention she puts on a hypersexual display or becomes a stripper or something like that so she gets a lot of male attention but it doesn't make it better it doesn't fix it you know it's like if you didn't get enough to eat when you were a kid eating more when you're an adult is just going to make you fat it's not going to go back and satiate your hunger as a child you you can't you can't fix childhood stuff with adult manipulation we we do that stuff so we have so we can avoid grieving about what happened to us in our childhoods but we we can't we can't fix it, so his mom keeps writing to this rich guy she worked for 30 years ago and says, you know, help us, help us, help us, right? And because she has this salvation fantasy, she doesn't actually have to fix her life. And because she's completely stuck in this little obsessive letter-writing stuff, and my father was a great letter writer too, he said, I collect people the way some people collect stamps. But She's stuck in this salvation fantasy, and and he can't he can't move move beyond that. Now listen, that is such a terrifyingly common thing with the single sons of single mothers. I can't even tell you. I don't know what the data is, so this is just anecdotal. But it was everywhere when I was growing up. Just these women, they had no men in their lives. They were old. They were past the sexual market value, and they just put their hooks deep into their sons and. Just hung on like grim death, just using and exploiting and 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 kind of inserting this this estrogen proboscis of of need into these boys and just taking out their life essence month by month, year by year. And then what happens is, again, I've seen this up close. What happens is. The women, you know, live to be their 80s and then what happens is they die and their sons are in their 40s or 50s and it's absolutely brutal, absolutely brutal. And there's the siren song of easy companionship and, oh, I'll make you a meal and come on over and let's watch our shows together and, I mean, the moms are lonely, right? The moms are lonely and they won't let their sons go. They just reel their sons in and we're so programmed as men to obey the needs of women, that it's a very, very, it's like, well, it's like watching a salmon try to swim up, not just a waterfall, but Niagara Falls, and you just, it's very, very hard to escape that kind of stuff, very hard. So his mother needs him and wants him, and they live together, and oh, he's an incel and this sort of stuff, and fatherlessness, of course, is pretty key in the whole movie. But there's this show... sort of a reversal of the King of Comedy, an old Scorsese film with De Niro. But Robert De Niro, you know, plays himself. He's just such a a hack these days. But anyway, um, he plays this talk show host. And Arthur Fleck has a fantasy when he's watching this show with his mother. He has a fantasy that the talk show host notices him and then calls him down. From the audience onto the stage well first of all he says you know what do you do and he says oh i live with my mother my mother is old i take care of my mother and the audience is all like oh that's great you know as opposed to you know a guy in his 40s still taking care of his mother which should be the husband's job right but then robert de niro's talk show host character says oh you know your your mother must love you that's a wonderful thing it's a great thing that you're taking care of your mother what a what a special young man and so on and Arthur Fleck and, and Joaquin Phoenix's acting is terrifyingly good throughout the whole movie. I should get an Oscar, <laughs> however unpleasant the, the subject matter, But or maybe because. But Arthur Fleck is, is, is proud and he preens about how he takes care of his mother and he loves his mother and his mother is... and, and cares for him and, and everyone's like, oh, what a wonderful son, what a great son. And then he comes down in his fantasy to the show stage... And Robert De Niro's character says, you know, all these lights, all of this fame, all of this money, I would give it all up just to have a son like you. Now, father absence in Sons in particular, it does for for girls, but again, sort of a male film. Father absence is completely... It it lends boys to be so open to manipulation, it's terrifying, right? So Arthur Fleck has this fantasy of the Robert De Niro talk show host character that he's, he loves him and, and, and thinks he's a wonderful son and right, this is the father absence. And this locking into celebrity as a recovery device or a self-medication device for father absence is not at all uncommon and uh, I've certainly had it to a, I mean to a smaller degree. With myself when people who liked me and and then I do something that's wrong and they flip from like really really liking me to really really hating me that's this unstable non bond like when you have a bond you can handle ambiguity or ambivalence in people but when you don't have a bond you run totally hot or totally cold like you love people and it's gonna be perfect and then if they disappoint you they were terrible they were always terrible and they tricked you and and you hate them and so on right a human bond it's designed to allow you to handle contradictions in people because there are contradictions in people and people perfect, And so when you have a strong bond, you don't need that. But when you have an idealized abstract bond, then this quasi-religious purity perfection requirement comes into play and you can't have a stable relationship because you just go from hot and cold all the time, right? So the reason I'm talking about all of this is, I think it's interesting and it's true, but also because... When people were saying to me, when I was talking about being abused by my mother, that this is like, I'm like Norman Bates and so on, and Norman Bates loved his, quote, loved his mother, right, loved his mother, Uh, a a, a boy's best friend should be his mother, right, and he, he, quote, loved his mother, and didn't see anything wrong with her, and this Arthur Fleck also loves his mother, right, doesn't see anything wrong with her, although she is a crazy psychotic, predatory, and formerly, if not currently, violent Uh, person and this is what we do in society is is we we train children to love abusive people to love people who have harmed them enormously and so when i talk about my own mother and that i do not love her i don't hate her i mean this is all so long ago it's like i mean gosh 40 40 years ago i mean was really the last time she had any power over me because when i hit puberty i got bigger than she was and i just Delmo put a stop to this kind of violence, right? So I don't hate her. I don't really think about her that much. It's all so long in the past. I've got a great life now and, and so much to look forward to and I enjoy being a parent and, and being a husband and, and it's wonderful. So. But when society trains people to love abusers, to Stockholm Syndrome abusers, see, abusers rely on that, you understand. They rely on Society being the sheepdog that brings all the sheep back home and chains them back up to their abusers, right? Anybody tries to flee the carnage factory of early child abuse, society's going to round them up and ship them back home. And so when Norman Bates and Arthur Fleck and so on claim to love their mothers even though their mothers are incredibly destructive, that sows the seed, that sets the stage for the violence to come. Because truth can't be denied, foundationally. Truth cannot be denied. You can resist it, you can fight it, and so on. And we find out. Later, And I'm not doing this sequentially because I'm talking about themes rather than the plot. So, later... So, Arthur Fleck finds out from one of his mother's letters that he's supposed to be a Wayne, right? So, Bruce Wayne's father was supposed to be Arthur Fleck's father as well, right? And there's a confrontation and... He goes to Bruce Wayne's dad and says, "I'm, I'm your father." And so you're my father, and so on. And the guy says, "No, your mom was just some crazy woman who worked for me years ago. I had to dismiss her because she was nuts. I never slept with her. Plus, you're adopted, so I can't be your, I can't be your dad. I'm, I, you're adopted." So then he goes to the mental hospital and he steals the records and he finds out that nobody knows who his parents were. Arthur Fleck, the Joker to be, nobody knows who his parents were because he was abandoned, but what we do know is that his mother had boyfriends who physically abused Arthur joke be, when Arthur was a little boy to the point of brain injury, being found chained to a radiator, hungry, brutalized, right? Now that is, you know, I've got this whole series called The Bomb in the Brain, which you should really, really check out about the long-term effects of child abuse some people but that's a very very powerful thing because the joker character right arthur fleck has this involuntary laugh problem it's neurological damage based you know brain damage right that he laughs inappropriately and, and giggles inappropriately and so on and so when we find out that his mother was sexually turned on by violent, abusive, and destructive men, and probably offered up her son as someone they could practice their dark, sadistic arts on, while they banged her from time to time, shows you just how incredibly evil his own mother was. Now, you can't, uh, you, you. I can't emphasize this often enough, and I, I always get flack for this. But I don't fucking care. Like I'm sorry, I just, I don't care because. The salvation of the world is more important than your feelings or my feelings or whatever, right? So until we understand the capacity for females to be thoroughly and completely and totally evil, we can't save the world. We can't save the world. We can't understand it. Can't fathom the world, can't fix the world, can't save the world. Because look at this mom, right? Why did this mom adopt a son? Was it because she loved having children? Well, no. She let the son be abused. She adopted the son, I assume, because she got paid for it. Right? If you... Now, you can get welfare. You can get government money for adopting a kid, right? Because Arthur Fleck develops a kind of relationship with a black woman who lives down the hall. And and by the way, can we, like... It's so incessant, this promotion of interracial relationships. I know they exist and it's perfectly fine, but come on, not in the numbers you see in the movies uh, and the TV shows all the time. Just incessant promotion of interracial relationships. But anyway, um, he gets this relationship going with this black woman who lives down uh, the hall. And they meet in an elevator where the black woman's child, who's, I don't know, five or so, is just chattering away. And the mom turns to Arthur Fleck and just... Like, I I want to kill myself because I'm a mom, right? (laughs) Murderous mom, right? Murderous mom. Now, of course, if deep down he kind of knows or suspects that he was abandoned, then this mom is talking about killing herself, which would mean, since there's no father in the picture, that the mom abandons her own child. That's why he would have something in common with her. But for all we know, and I think it's true, Arthur Fleck is a virgin until... He murders three people. Now, after he murders three people, he goes to this black woman's apartment, throws open the door, and jumps her. Right, which to me is terrifying. But anyway, uh, that's that's what he does. Now, why why does this happen? Why does he? Why is he able to have sex? Why is he able to lose his virginity right after he murders people? Because his mother. was sexually attracted to men with murderous impulses, right, who who beat him uh, so badly he got brain damage, who chained him to a radiator, who uh, physically abused him, probably sexually abused him as well. And this is what happens when, when women, like ladies, when you choose violent men, if you choose violent men, you're throwing a log on fire that burns down the whole world. Because when we look at our mother, we look at somebody who has been sexually successful, right, because she's given birth to a child. And when we look at someone who's sexually successful, that's what our genes are programmed to respond to, right, because, you know, genes don't know it's the 21st century. are just looking for the local tribe. Hey, what works sexually? What works sexually? What is? What are people attracted to? What are they like? What is of value to people sexually? Like, how do you get bangs, right? This is how we're programmed. And so he looks at his mom and has a dim memory, of course, of all of this abuse that he suffered, which is that Women sexually respond to violent men. Violent men get to bang women. So, of course, he murders three people and then goes fucks and fucks a single mom down the hall. Violent men are sexually successful. Violent men banged my mom, mom beat me around the head, chained me to a radiator, starved me, beat me in general. So the only way that he has... To not be sexually active, why is he an incel? Because his mother has programmed him that only a violent, murderous man can have sex. Because that's who he saw having sex with his mom and probably heard it too, right? Chained to a radiator, blood in his mouth from a head beating that gave him neurological damage, right? He's sitting there, chained to a radiator, listening to his his, his mother bang the most violent and brutal man that can be imagined. So then how on earth is he going to date? He doesn't want to be violent, but only violent men are sexually successful. Only violent men get to bang women. That's what his mom taught him, right? So, of course, he goes and kills three guys and then immediately goes up and bangs his single mom down the hall. And it's funny. It's funny. There's nothing funny about this damn film, but this fertile plague of celluloid. But the single mom, she has a daughter, right? Now as is the case often when dating a single mom is fictionalized in a movie, you see the the kid and then the kid just vanishes, right? The the mom goes off to work, she comes home, she goes on dates, she hangs out with this guy at the hospital, Arthur Fleck at the hospital, after his mom gets sick and there's no no kid to be found. And then he he comes into her apartment and is kind of sitting there after he gets bad news and she comes in and she's like, my daughter's asleep in the next room. It's like, if your five-year-old daughter's asleep in the next room, lady, what the hell are you doing out? rest of the nines well of course we all know she's out there trolling for for men right probably so so arthur fleck's big complaint is people aren't nice they're not polite boy there's this fantasy out there that if people were nice and polite then arthur fleck wouldn't have gone crazy and started killing people bullshit he's got a child in his environment that he could be very nice to but he's not but what happens to the single mom's daughter he, we know that he can play with kids. I mean, the guy's a clown, literally, right? And he doesn't pay any attention to this girl. He doesn't take care of her. He doesn't play with her. We don't see any positive. And she just vanishes from the from the show. So this idea will just be nice. It's like he's because he's needy. So people have to be nice to me. But I don't have to be nice to the daughter of the single mom I'm banging. So the murders murders are interesting now first of all this idea that whites are serial killers is just false it's just another blood libel i mean of course there are whites who are serial killers but uh, it's uh, per capita it's much more common for blacks to be serial killers it's just just the way it is man I don't get mad at me so gotham this is kind of a weird thing because it's set in the 80s but someone can easily video a, a comedian and so on but uh, Gotham, of course, is a multicultural hellscape. There's diversity everywhere. In the beginning, the, the clown is spinning this sign to help someone sell stuff from a store going out of business and it looks like a bunch of Hispanic youths grab it and chase him down and all that. So he's harassed by minorities for the first third of the film. But what does he do? He only turns around and starts killing white people, right? Because, you know, political correctness, right? His, his victims all have to be white. And there's a very strange moment right so he's just you know he's beat down he's he's beat down upon and so on and then so he's in the he gets fired and we have to get into all the reasons why but uh he's in this train arthur fleck right the the main character the joker to be he's in a a subway and these three guys who are like Wall wall street financiers or whatever i think they work for uh bruce wayne's dad but they're harassing this woman, and because he's got this neurological disorder, he starts giggling and all that. And then the men start harassing him, right? And they start taunting him because they're offended or upset that he's laughing and so on, right? It's very primal, it's very sort of Stanley Kowalski stuff, right? But, um, and then the men just start beating the hell out of him and, and kicking him. And then he, he starts firing. He's got the gun, right? He starts firing back, which is, you know, mirrors of, of the Bernie Getz thing, except, of course, it's, it's white yuppies, not black thieves and hoodlums that, that are being shot. But um, you you can look it up, Bernie Getz, if you need to. But um, it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. Listen. The reality is this is not what finance yuppies do right? They, I mean, I worked on a trading floor. I worked in a bank. Like, I've known some of these guys. I was involved in a company going public. I've sat on a board. I mean, this is, I know some of this stuff. I mean, I have direct experience with some of this stuff. There can be some real sadism among the privileged financier class. But that sadism comes in enjoying ripping off little old ladies of their life savings, so to speak, right? Or, or lying about the toxicity of bundled prime mortgages and so on right subprime mortgages that's where that sociopathy comes in that's where that cruelty and coldness comes in in no way shape or form have I ever heard of some high-flying financiers beating a guy half to death on a subway like that shit just doesn't happen and maybe you can find me an exception I'm sure there is an exception out there but come on by by and large first of all if these guys are that rich they're not taking a subway in the middle of the night. You know, I know this is pre Uber because it's the 80s, but they just take a cab. They're not going to risk themselves getting ripped off down there. Um, and the idea that in, in the middle of the night in, in New York stand in Gotham, that in the middle of the night, you, the biggest danger are educated, professional white guys. I mean, my God almighty. God, I mean, do you know that if New York was all white, I mean, if it was East Asian, it'd be even better. But if it was all white, just say, shootings would be reduced by 96%. Robberies by over 90%. Murders by over 90%, if if it was all white. So the idea that, you know, what you really have to fear, you see, is is educated, white, yuppie professionals in the middle of the night. Well, that's, again, it's just counterfactual, but, you know, I mean... (laughs) This is why I don't run crime shows, because if I ran crime shows, I'd say, okay, what are these statistics for a violence by race? And then I'd just have people show up by that race, and people would get mad and say, well, there's a lot of blacks in here, a lot of Hispanics, and there's not really any East Asians and not many whites. And be like, hey, I just went with the facts, I just went with the data, right? So you want to get mad at me, get mad at, you, get mad at the data, right? But um, this is not what yuppies do, but that's who he starts shooting. Now... This, of course, marks off this whole antifa psycho-communist anarchist movement where uh, they they hate the rich, right? They hate the rich. Because there's this terrible libel against the rich, right? There are there are people who get rich because they, they work hard and they make sacrifices and they take risks and, and they're decent people and they supply a market need. And then there are the people who get rich because their son. Well, they get rich because their daddy happens to be vice president who's in charge of over a billion dollars worth of aid to Ukraine. And so they get hired like Hunter Biden did. They get hired despite having history of drug addiction and no experience or knowledge of Ukrainian gas industries or, or even the language. They get hired on a board and get paid 50,000 U.S. dollars a month. Completely corrupt. Completely corrupt. And there's not a differentiation between these two people. And, you know, people who, who become wealthy by serving the marketplace are good guys. And people who become wealthy because of corrupt political connections are bad guys. It's like saying, well, you know, some people went to the slave market to buy slaves so that they could work them half to death. And some people went to the slave market to buy slaves so they could set them free. And they're both exactly the same people. And It's like, come on, that's not, that's not right. That's not fair at all, right? So, the mother, just to back to mother for a sec, she's, she's shown a sort of very gentle and confused a little bit and all that. It's not how crazy people are. Crazy people who are addicted to a salvation fantasy, when that salvation fantasy gets questioned or pushed back against, the violence erupts. The violence and the rage erupts. But it, they, they can't really show that, right? Because there's female evil here, which is the foundation of the male evil, which is banging guys and then allowing them to beat your son half to death because you are turned on in some sick Fifty Shades of Grey stuff. I mean, well, Fifty Shades of Grey thing is a massive warning about the uh, predatory nature and sadistic nature of significant portions of female sexuality, man. That stuff is that stuff is just absolutely appalling and, and, and horrifying, right? So the female evil, that you can't show the female evil, right? You can only show the shadow cast by the female evil, which is the male evil. And I'm not, of course, trying to say that the men have no responsibility and Arthur Fleck has no responsibility. They do. But women choose the men they sleep with. Men, most men will sleep with just about anything. And this has been shown repeatedly in um, study after study. You know, anonymous uh, women go up to men in a bar and say, let's go upstairs and have sex. And good proportions, if not most of the men, say yes. And anonymous men go up to women and vast majority of women say no. Women choose. That's why men ask women out, still 80% plus. That's why men pay for dates. That's why men men go and ask women out and the women say yes or no. Now, that's a privileged position, right? It's a privilege because it's pretty, pretty nerve-wracking to go up and ask a woman out, if, particularly if you really like her. So women are in a privileged position of being able to choose from men. A reasonably attractive woman can choose from 10, 20, or 30 men uh, at just about any given time. She can doll herself up and she can go out and men will, will ask her out and so on and, and, and men will sort of come up and, and, and try and get her number and then they'll call her and try and ask her out. So men, it's a buyer's market for men. It's a seller's market for, for women, right? I mean, it's pretty easy. Like, are you, are you, if you only get one offer for your house, you're not totally responsible if you have to sell it. You're not totally responsible for the price you sell it for. But if you get 20 offers for your house, then you have more control over the price you sell for, right? Being in a seller's market. So women are more responsible for these foundational matters because women have more choice than men do. Because men will just ask women out and whoever says yes, they'll go out with and and try and please and try and make things work with, right? So that's just a reality of life and of the world and women get this privilege of being asked out and getting to choose from all these different men and with great privilege comes great responsibility which means that women are far more responsible for the pairings that occur than men are right it's just just the way it is I mean get mad at me just get mad at evolution or whatever you want to get mad at right so the female evil is the foundation of this but you can't show it in the movie right you can't show You can't show Arthur Fleck's mom getting sexually aroused as she watches a man beat her son half to death. You can't show that, right? That's got to be off screen in the past. Like you can't show the murder of a black person in the movie. You can show white guys getting their heads blown up and stabbed in the eyeball and white guys just dropping like rain, right? But you can't show the black woman who dies. That's off screen. You don't see that. You just see bloody footprints, right? That's, again, just part of this anti-white racism and hatred that's unfortunately just been stoked and stoked and stoked these days to, to a truly disastrous end. But anyway, so you can't show that female evil. So the woman who's got to be kind of distracted and a little bit needy and, and kind of daughtery and she never gets too mad, and that's just not the reality, man. That's not the reality of, of how things are. I mean, my mom was m- older than Arthur Fleck's mom. One of the last conversations I had with my mom was uh, she hypochondriac and continually suing people and it never went anywhere it'd been going on for like 20-25 years and she just kept talking and talking about this stuff and I remember saying to her I said listen you know can we mix up the topics a little bit like I accept that you are unwell. I accept that you have these legitimate law suits which yeah, I didn't really but you know of keeping the peace but you know can we I just feel like we don't have much conversation other than that right I mean can we just mix it up a little bit and talk about some other things because I'd like to talk about things other than your illnesses and your lawsuits, right? And yeah, my mom just went completely ballistic and she was at that point late 60s, I think, mid-late 60s. And, you know, she was screaming that I was in league with the people who had made her sick and, and she was throwing pillows and screaming top of the lungs and like that's... You know, so you you can't show any of that from Arthur Flex because you can't show the female root of this kind of male evil. You you can't you can't show that she picked up this kid who she clearly didn't like because she allowed Arthur to be abused, or not just allowed. She didn't allow Arthur to be. She invited the abusers in. Right? You can't, right? You can't see the scene where Arthur Flex' mom is cruising all through the bars and stuff, and there are nice guys who want to ask her out, but she picks up the nastiest most violent, abusive guy that she can find. She brings him home, and then she provokes a fight between the guy and her son, because she's mad at her son. The guy beats Arthur Fleck half to death, chains him to a radiator, and she rewards him by screwing his brains out, right? You, you can't show that scene, because we're still a long way from being able to understand and process female evil. I mean, <laughs> it may seem a million miles away, but it gets a little closer every yeah, day. I mean, I want to get this topic into... Into the world because you know women obviously play the victim, right? I mean, a man's strength is his appearance. A man's weakness is his appearance of strength, and a woman's strength is her appearance of weakness. It's not mine. That's I think Warren Farrell's. But we we gotta we gotta call you know if you want equality, right? You call women to account, or you take away equality, right? So the other thing that that you can see as a theme in the movie is the destruction of America's mental health care system. And, of course, in the reviews that I read, it's all, oh, Reagan-era cuts to blah, 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 blah. It's not actually the case. I did a whole presentation on this. I'll link to it below. The destruction of the American mental health care system, which was specifically done uh, by communists uh, in order to destabilize and harm bourgeois Western capitalist society, right? The, 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 The deinstitutionalization, pushing people out on the streets and... And uh, taking the money and then putting it into left-wing activism and so on, uh, communist activism, uh, this whole system which kept society safe was completely taken apart. And so this Arthur Flat guy, he's out on the streets, uh, he's, he's barely holding it together, and he's, he says, or his, his social worker says, well, you're on seven different medications. And then, of course, later, the system runs out of money, right? So she says, oh, the system has run out of money, so we can't see each other anymore. He gets like one week or, you know, you can see me next week. And he's like, where am I going to get my medications from? And she's like, basically, well, good luck. They don't give a shit about you. They don't give a shit about me uh, and so on, right? Now that's, that's a rough thing. That's a rough thing to, uh, to talk about, right? Because, I mean, these SSRI medications, these brain-altering medications, these psychotropic medications, come on come on. You know, if you have something like a polio vaccine, then you would expect the prevalence of polio to go down, right? To go down. If you have a cure for something, like if you have, let's say you have a cure for tuberculosis, you expect the prevalence of tuberculosis to go down. It's not the way that it works with these psychotropic medications at all. These SSRIs, as they have been more and more prescribed, the prevalence of mental illness has gone through the roof. And you need to check out the book Mad in America, Again I'll put a link to that below as well It's a fantastic book and it's Robert Whitaker I think his name is and he's been on the show a couple of times uh, so this idea well you know you're out of uh, you're out of uh, money so you can't get your medications anymore you can't talk to this useless as tits on a bull social worker who doesn't listen he complains she doesn't listen and nobody talks to this guy about anything nobody sits there and says you know I think your mom is exploiting you you know you know, if this guy called in to my show, right? I mean, I'd, I'd be saying, like, okay. He's like, oh, but it turns out I, I, I was adopted. It's like, well, why didn't your mom tell you you were adopted? Well, I don't know. Well, I know why your mom didn't tell you why you were adopted. It's clear as a day as to why your mom didn't tell you, Arthur, that you were adopted. She didn't tell you you were adopted. Because if she told you you were adopted, you'd fuck on right out of there and she'd have no one to rub her bunions. Right, She'd have no one to fetch her, her hot cocoa. She'd have no one to sit there and watch her brain-deadening, stupid, late-night talk shows with her. She'd be alone, which is kind of what she's deserved, kind of what she's earned, is loneliness and solitude and a roving hellscape of spending the rest of your 20 years getting older and older while running out of energy to dodge your conscience because you banged guys who banged your kid's head against a fucking radiator. Okay, so take what you want you, you can get the violent guys in there who are going to beat your child half to death and what are the consequences of that well the consequences of that should be that you live your life uh, out without the company of your son because you invited men into your son's life and into your bed who beat him half to death gave him a permanent neurological damage and did god knows what else to mess up his sense of reality right Right, because, you know, I mean, my mom lives, it's, it's a kind of hell, right? That's so why I don't think about it that much, is, is time and conscience has done, like, you end up in hell. If All the people have to do is stop supporting your bullshit, and, and if you're a horrible person, and, and you end up in hell. And people say, well, why don't you help her? Why don't you fix her? It's like, I can't, because I can't undo what she did. You know, like, if somebody chain smokes for 20, 30, 40 years, then they get emphysema, they get lung cancer. People say, well, why don't you fix it? I, I can't, I can't fix it. I can't fix it. Why? Because I can't go back in time and pull the cigarettes out of that person's mouth. And I can't go back in time and undo the evil that my mom did. Now, either she can admit that evil, which would be a wonderful thing to do. She could admit that evil and get help and, and all of that, and then I would forgive her, right? Forgiveness has to be earned. It's not something you just will. That's just lies told to you by people who don't want to go through the pain of apologizing and providing restitution and so on, right? But I, I can't, I can't go back in time and have her not beat my head against the door until I almost passed out. I, I can't do it. And I'm just talking about one incident, this was a sort of very dramatic incident, but there was you know continual uh, violence and, and, and physical abuse and emotional abuse and so on throughout my childhood again until uh, basically mostly kicked her out when I was 15. But I can't go back and undo, I don't have the power to go back and any more than you have the power to go back and if someone's been an alcoholic and they get cirrhosis of the liver and you say, well, why don't you fix it? Well, I can't fix it because I can't go back and have that person not be an alcoholic for 30 years. You say, oh, well, you can give them your liver you can give them a lung. And it's like, yeah, but you can't transfer absolution in the absence of restitution. You, you can't. I mean, you can if you want in the same way that you can give people 50 bucks even though they didn't deliver your dinner. but." That's not justice, right? Justice is paying what you owe and not paying what you don't owe. That's that's justice, right? That's that's fairness. That's reality, right? So, So the system runs out of medication. Nobody's talked to him about anything important. His mama doesn't talk to him about anything important. His co-workers don't talk to him about anything important. His social worker doesn't talk to him about anything important. And then... Everything runs out of money. And this is foundational, right? This is foundational to the whole issue of what's going on here. Why has the situation arisen? Why has the situation arisen? So, All organizations eventually get taken over by sociopaths, right? If they're powerful and successful, they're going to get taken over by sociopaths. Why? Because sociopaths want power over other people. Organizations that have power, that have authority, get taken over by sociopaths and then they crater and the free market comes up with fresh organizations not controlled by sociopaths. And the problem, of course, is that when you have government funding, the free market stripping down of the sociopathic steering of an organization doesn't occur. Because it just it's like can't be killed. It's a zombie, right? It's 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 undead. So there's natural cycling where good people found an organization, it grows and gains influence, and then sociopaths are like, oh man, we gotta get control over that thing. It's a lot of power, right? And you see this happening with social media companies, right? And so normally in, in a free market, after a while, people get sick and tired of the sociopaths being in charge, sociopaths being in charge, and the leftists being in charge, and then those Companies crater, right, get woke, go broke, and then new, fresher companies with more decent people renew. It's Unfortunately, it's like the forest gets overgrown, you need a big fire, and then the forest can grow again, and it's the same thing with organizations. Now, with governments and government-protected cartels and government-controlled things and, and where well, you've got this licenses and this fencing and you've got tenure and you've got, you know, in perpetuity, government funding or government protection from the market, the sociopaths never they never lose, right? They just you get more and more and more of them, right? So you can see the CIA, FBI, Department of Defense, you name it, Department of Education just infested because the cleansing fire, allegorically speaking, the cleansing fire of the free market never undercuts the sociopaths in charge and replaces the industry with something better or something different or something fresher or something at least not sociopathic. And so... How did we end up with this guy? Because it's an impossible situation, right? This Arthur Fleck, it's an impossible situation. <sighs> okay, when some people go, start to go crazy, the alarm bells go off in their brain and they say, oh man, you know, I really, I got to fix this, I got to deal with this, I got to get better. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm not doing well here, right? And for other people though, unfortunately, the part of them that goes crazy first is the part of them that can detect whether they're crazy or not. The part of them that compares their actions to some sort of ideal standard or some sort of reasonable standard of behavior, right? So, I don't know if you've ever had this. If you're a decent person, you probably have. Where you you, you end up yelling at someone when you're young and you're hot-tempered and you're immature. You end up yelling at someone and then you say, oh my God. Oh my God, what am I doing? Well, there's a great line in The Seagull. It's not a great line, but it's a great moment. I remember this. I played it role in The Seagull when I was in theater school, a very minor role because I was already in the playwriting program, but this, this young, hot-tempered artist is screaming at his girlfriend and the more reasonable older doctor says, no, 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 not right, not the way. Hmm. I remember thinking about that. And there's a part where you say, oh, man, like, I, I can't do this. You, it's, it's called an observing ego or a third eye where you look at yourself and you say, the shit that I'm doing is not right. This is not good, this is not right, not the way, as the character says in The Seagull, Chekhov's The Seagull. But unfortunately for some people, the way they go crazy, and maybe it's the brain damage from this guy when he was younger, is their observing ego as the first thing to go. They have no idea that they're crazy. Now, this guy does seem to have some idea that he's crazy. Like he says, oh, the, the toughest thing about being mentally ill is having to pretend that you're not and so on, right? So he does seem to know that he's Crazy or getting crazy or going crazier, but he has no capacity to stop it. Why? Why? Because he's in a completely unreal world. So why was the mother allowed to adopt? I don't know. The government's supposed to protect these kids, right? So kids found abandoned is handed over to this crazy sociopathic... Mom who invites child abusers in to bang them after they brutalize her son. Government doesn't have any incentive to make sure that these people are all safe. I mean DHS can be, DHS, um, DCS can be uh, brutal, brutal. And so they just give her the money and then what's she living on? She can't be living on a part-time clown's salary. Because she's getting disability, she's getting money, right? So she doesn't have to. The observing ego is danger, 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 right? Now, for smart people, you get this observing ego, and it's kind of long-term and it's abstract, like not right, not the way, and so on. But for less intelligent people, you, you, you need you need like immediate, direct financial feedback, like oh, I, I yelled at a, a, a customer, I got fired, so I, I I should not yell at customers. I should I should. Be a nicer, better, decent person. So smart people, we can kind of look at the abstract consequences of our bad habits and we can fix them and so on. But less intelligent people, it's very, very cruel to keep these economic realities away from them. You know, one of the reasons that I don't interact with my mom is because of the government, because of the welfare state. So I used to give my mom a lot of money. Unfortunately, she just turned around and gave it to shyster lawyers in pursuit of these useless court cases. But I, can't, I have no control because the the money, the government money, just keeps going to my mom. Right? She just keeps she just keeps getting the money. As a taxpayer, I'm forced to fund it. I can't right. So I can't say to her, "Listen, you need to, you need to change your habits. You need to get some regular sleep. You need to eat well. You need to get some therapy. You need to stop this useless." abuse of the court system and, and like, you need to stop this stuff. I have no no capacity or control to do any of that because she can just tell me to F off and she gets the money from me anyway. And that's the problem is you lose community involvement, you lose the capacity for self-regulation as part of the community. You lose feedback, you lose interest because... So this woman, I mean, she has an emotional need for her son, which is why she lies to him and, and keeps him around and all that. But... She doesn't fear ending up out in the streets, because she can always cry to the politicians, the politicians will give her money, right, the system will give her money, whether she's earned it or not, regardless of how terrible a human being she's been or not. And. Because we won't let people fail in that way, they can't serve as a warning or example to others, so other people follow them down that path, and you lose all sense of reality. And the one thing that's true about these kinds of crazy people, I have found universally to be the case, and again, if you've got different experiences, I'm happy to hear them, I'm just telling you what I've consistently seen and understand intellectually, is they hate the truth. You know, the truth is supposed to set you free. Right? The truth is supposed to set you free. And so she doesn't want to know the truth, right? She, she's she got this whole, his mom, right, has got this whole fantasy world where, you know, she slept with this rich guy and, and it's her son and she's writing to him to get money and uh, uh, she's going to get the money because whatever, right? It's just a fantasy world, right? And it's supported by government money because if she was running out of government money if or if she wasn't getting government money, a charity would say, okay, you got to let this go. A charity would say, oh, this is, This uh, Bruce Wayne's dad, is this your son's dad? Okay, well, let's go check this out. Let's go sort this out. If it turns out not to be the case, as it isn't the case, they'd say, okay, you've got to let this go, and you've got to go get a job, right? You've got to do something sensible. Otherwise, we're going to cut you off, right? And then she'd have some kind of reality feedback that would help her. But because she's just getting this government money, we assume, then, and she's getting government health care and all that, she doesn't have to course correct, right? There's no bounce. There's nothing solid. There's no gravity. There's no reality. And so when her son says, I mean, you worked there like 30 years ago. What's this guy going to care? She doesn't have to respond to him. She's not dependent on his money. She's emotionally dependent on him, but not financially dependent, which is more deep in a way. And this allergy to truth is based on a debt-based financial system. I know that sounds kind of weird, but it's really, really true. This, This hostility to truth Like, how can you, like, look at postmodernism, right? This idea that rationality is like a white cisgender Western concept and and there's no such thing as truth and reality and objectivity and so on. Like, why can you, how can you survive if you believe such bullshit? Because of debt, because of government power, because of government control. You try pulling that shit if you're a fisherman or you got to go and hunt. Oh, you've got to go and pick fruit for your family. Well, there's no such thing as fruit truths. Fish are just a concept. And you'll starve to death. You can't afford that bullshit if you're in reality, if you have consequences. But when you get debt being endlessly pumped, debt, borrow, predation, selling off the unborn, debt money, magic money, print money, crush interest rates, sell treasuries, money dissolves, like fake money dissolves reality for people. It dissolves reality. You can only afford postmodernism in a debt-based financial system. You try that shit, when you have consequences, you drop it like that. You know, I didn't like having to go and work with my hands for a year and a half after high school, save money for university, but in hindsight, it was one of the best things I ever did. You know, why, if somebody asked me on Twitter, or just asked on Twitter, why why do farmers have such common sense? It's because they deal with reality. You know, you can't be a postmodernist when you're humping around an 80-pound pion drill to try and drill for bedrock in the middle of the canadian shield I mean, you, you can't you, you can't oh it's just a concept. It's like no it's all very real and if you fuck up you're dead now you get an injury out there and you're like three plane rides and a hop- helicopter ride away from a hospital you're fucking dead if you don't respect reality and objectivity I can't really take a philosopher very seriously who's not spent at least a year working with his hands in the real world with actual physical consequences. You go from high school to college to tenure, you know fuck off. You know nothing about reality. I mean, it's all made up joke. You you can manipulate people, you can't manipulate reality. And so all of this debt-based bullshit is why... All of this nonsense exists. Why can you afford to just be a horrible person and deluded and and all of that, right? And you look at Arthur Fleck when he gets the truth about his existence, right? What happens? He gets the truth about his existence. Does it set him free? No. Turns him into a murderer, so to speak, right? He gets the truth about his existence. He just he goes and he goes and kills his mom. He goes and kills more people. He goes and kills right his fantasy father, the talk show host. And I told you there'd be spoilers, so. that's the unreality that we're living in. So in this situation, the money's running out. And in, in the West, we're circling the drain, man. The money is running out. The money is running out. And all of this, these lives and these delusions and these psychoses and these these this craziness is being supported, this unreality. Like the money is unreal. Our finance system is unreal. Debt is unreal. Artificially low interest rates are unreal. Bundling up. Toxic subprime mortgages and dumping them around the world because you were forced to rent to minorities or to sell, sell houses to minorities. That's all unreal. And I've known this. I've known people like this. If the first thing to go is the reality processing unit, which goes because it gets short-circuited by infinite, the infinite fantasy of infinite resources, he gets the truth and, and he goes nuts. He doesn't sit there and say, oh, my God, I've been lied to. I can go and live a life now. I don't have to, I don't have to be attached to my mom anymore. I can go be free. Or he's been too damaged, right? He's been too damaged. And then, of course, the lie that when he's off his meds, he goes and kills people. It seems to me that the majority of people, what's the website, SSRI Stories? The majority of people who end up killing are on their meds, and the meds come with black-label warnings about homicidal, suicidal thoughts and so on, so. And he says, like, this nihilism, this emptiness, right? Like, Arthur Fleck says, the Joker of says throughout the movie, like, I I don't think I exist. I, I believe in nothing. I am nothing. It's like, because he's, he's an empty vessel just filled with his mother's needs, right? Because it's men, men can survive the end of the welfare state. Women don't think, think that they can, which is why when, like, why does Antifa attack people who are free market because people who are free market hate the welfare state why do they attack why do they hate christianity because christianity is foundational on thou shall not steal and the welfare state is stealing right so why do the antifa guys go out and attack christians and free market guys right because they're just empty geppetto puppet vagina foot soldiers of their mother's bottomless emotional and financial needs You go out, honey, and you beat the shit out of people who might interfere with my welfare check, okay? And the amount of male violence that serves female greed can scarcely be calculated in this world. So, I mean, uh, by the time the movie opens, the end of the movie is almost guaranteed. Almost guaranteed. What do we do with people so fundamentally broken? See, there are some people, you tell them the truth, and it's tough, and there's a big relief, and they they change for the better, and they, they, you know. But then there are other people like Arthur Fleck, so broken that the truth doesn't set them free. It just takes the safety off their gun.